Black, gay, Christian. This is how today's guest, Shermaine Melton, told me who he is in the world. Shermaine spent most of his life not feeling enough, not belonging at home, at school, or at church. So he pushed parts of his identity down and focused on his achievements. Though Shermaine grew up in poverty with seven siblings listening to his parents fighting about money, he went on to get an MBA, became a millionaire, and held senior leadership positions in telecommunications firms and in the financial services industry. Nowadays, he's an international speaker and executive coach. And we don't talk about any of his shiny achievements today. Instead, Shermaine shares what it was like to push down his truth in favor of fitting in. He numbed himself out with work and distraction. He even got engaged to a woman. And then, one day when he came home from work, his room was turned upside down, his bed was flipped, his drawers were emptied. Shermaine knew his secret was out. It was then that he could start doing the work of self-acceptance and realize the key distinction between fitting in and belonging. What I love about this conversation with Shermaine is witnessing a man who spent his life not feeling enough, owning all of who he is, moving through his fear and learning how to make empathy and vulnerability into a superpower as a leader. This reminds me, and you too I hope, that even the shiniest and most impressive leaders are often holding so much inside. Before we kick off, hello, I'm Dr. Mandy Leto, executive coach and recovering perfectionist and overachiever. This is a show for anyone whose life looks shiny from the outside, but inside, you secretly never feel good enough. I see you because I've been there too. These are the leadership conversations that no one is having. The stuff beneath the impressive veneer, the self-doubt, the vicious self-talk, the burnout. Welcome, I'm so glad you're here. I drop us right into the conversation where I ask what we need to know about the young Shermaine and how he learned to hide. Let's dive in. Young Shermaine, what you need to know is he felt unseen. He had seven siblings, two parents, and felt unseen. And so, hmm, what you need to know is he only wanted to be seen. That's actually what he really wanted was to be deeply seen and held and understood. But it seemed as though no one, no one took the time to, to do that. No one took the time to do that. And so he learned very young. I learned very young at a young age that, well, maybe I need to, to just do it myself and just try to try to get through it and we'll worry about tomorrow, tomorrow. Can you think of a time where you tried to connect and you tried to make your needs known? I'm trying mm -hmm. to think of where that fear of rejection came from, that you were willing to push that down. Does anything yes. come to mind? Let's see. So my parents argued a lot. My parents argued a lot. And I kind of felt like I didn't really matter. Like I was just a number. I never had a day to myself. I never had time to myself. I never had an event to myself. You see, I'm a twin and there was, <laughs> I never had my own, own day to myself. My parents never said, hey, we're going to take an hour and go hang out with you. You know, let's go to the park or let's go do something fun. And so 
let me see, as I think about a time when I actually tried, I think I was, I was really scared that, uh, that I would get rejected. And so I just simply said, well, I guess this is the way it is. What do we need to know about you as a, as a young man when yes. you were going out into the world, still possibly carrying a lot of these beliefs, still carrying the secret of being gay Mm -hmm. How did the not enoughness show up as you got older? Mm. As I got older, it showed up in different realms. I can remember at the age of 20, my first job was a cook at a Pizza Hut restaurant. At the age of 20, I was promoted to a general manager. And at the age of 20, I was running a million dollar restaurant. I had 40 employees, which uh, half of them were older than I was. So there was a little bit of not enoughness there where I was also the youngest black general manager here in Phoenix. At the time, there were only three of us and out of probably 60 stores. And so <laughs> there's a not enoughness showed up a little bit differently of, you know, I'm the youngest person here. Am I, I I'm not old enough, experienced enough. So it showed up a, a bit differently there. Also, let's see, growing up in the church, being in the Christian church, being gay is a sin. It's 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 bad. Um, and also being being black and being gay and the the thoughts around masculinity and oh you know you can't be a black male and mean being be gay because that means you're feminine or you're you know so there are these labels that are put on you also. So as I got older, I began to to realize or become aware of of these other things. Not enoughness in in my job, kind of feeling that way, and then connecting being black, being gay, and being Christian, and, and kind of what 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 uh, is developing there for me. Yeah, tell us a little bit more about how how all of these realizations, like what did that mean for you as they were bubbling under the surface? Yes, when I when I'm if I get really specific, so one of the things also in the sixth grade. We moved from a predominantly white school where I was the minority and I still felt alone, but I didn't feel super alone. Like I felt like they didn't understand me, but it, it was, it was, I was getting through it. In sixth grade, I moved to a predominantly black school where everyone looked like me. And that's where I felt the most alone because it was there where I was bullied the most because of how I spoke, because of how I looked. I was called an Oreo which is you're, you're a black person on the outside, but you're white on the inside. That's not a compliment. And um, <laughs> it was this feeling and thought of, well, where do I fit in? Where will I be enough? I'm not enough amongst my own people or people who look like me. I'm not am enough amongst these other people who don't look like me. Where, where am I gonna, gonna be enough? Where can I belong? And so that's a piece there as well about about when I grew up. And then add the the being gay as well yes. to that. Yes. yes. And so, ooh, as we as I think about that and process that, that was in the sixth grade. And so I thought, wow, if my own people, people who look like me, are treating me this way, why would I ever show them, <laughs> give them more ammunition? Why would I give them more, more to bully me about, to tease me about? Why would I give them more? And so I I connected at a at a younger age that hey I need to make sure I've got my shields up because they're bullying me based on things that they see 
What if they see things that I don't want them to see? Psychologists at the University of Southern Illinois, and the article is linked in the show notes, say that maintaining a hidden identity has a high emotional cost. For one thing, it is utterly depleting being on and managing one's image 24-7. This can be especially true, as Shermaine later shares, as a person of color whose sexual orientation wasn't accepted in his belief system. There's a great quote that comes to mind by Rita Mae Brown. The reward for conformity is that everyone likes you except yourself. So what about you? How are you hiding? So here's some different examples of what hiding can look like. I'm hiding behind being an expert, which um, prevents me from trying things that I'm not already good at. Or I'm hiding behind chronic busyness. Or I'm hiding behind a more confident colleague. Or I'm hiding behind feeling that I need to be nice and agreeable. Ooh, I knew that one for decades. These might be good journal prompts. So try this one. How am I hiding? So let's drop back into the conversation where Shemaine shares what the cost of hiding was for him. I was wondering where I could be myself at because I didn't see it. I couldn't be myself <laughs> at church. I couldn't be my, you know, I didn't feel I could be myself at church or with around certain groups. And so there was always this in the back of my mind wondering where can I belong? Where can I really feel like I'm seen and heard? And to answer your other question about the cost, wow, the cost was huge. It, 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 this, this, it's this feeling. I was walking around with this kind of cloud, this rain cloud over me the entire time. This, this heaviness, this fear, this fear that I couldn't be myself. And so it was, yeah, it was, a, it was a heavy heaviness and a, and a, and a large, large cost. Yeah. Confronting the truth about how we've been hiding is rarely straightforward or convenient. This is why many patterns and behaviors that keep parts of us pushed down can go on for years, decades even. Shermaine used work and sport to numb out and to cut himself off from his inner world. And to further deny his sexual orientation, Shermaine did what he thought he was supposed to do next. He got engaged to a woman. I wanted so much to feel accepted. I wanted so much to belong that, yes, in high school, I went to prom with someone named Andrea. Her and I are still great friends to this day. She's amazing. And her family's amazing, too. And I proposed to her because, again, I thought that's what I was supposed to do. And I ended up sabotaging it. I figured out a way to sabotage it so that I didn't have to tell her my secret. As I, as I think about, because people ask me, like, how did you sabotage it? <laughs> and I, th I think I blocked that part out. All I remember was us being in my car. I'm dropping her off at home. We had a conversation, which ends with her getting out of the car, throwing the ring at me while I'm still sitting in the car and slamming the door and, and storming off. And how did you feel when that happened? Oh, I felt like garbage because she didn't. She didn't deserve any of it. And I knew, I knew that if I just told her, she would understand. Like she, she may not have liked it, right? But she would have, she would have understood. And I felt, I felt so bad. I felt like I was making her feel alone. And like she didn't belong by doing that and not letting her in and, and letting her know what was really going on with me. 
Next, Germain shares how his world blew apart when his secret was finally revealed. And then he had to face his biggest fear. <laughs> I'm laughing because this is like really embarrassing. And so it's really something I don't want to share. So let me share it. You know, as I think about my coming out story, it was not, it was not really glamorous. And so, um, <laughs> um, I, um, used to watch porn before I would go to sleep and, um, I had a VCR. And for those of you that don't know the way a VCR works is when you play the tape, when it gets to the end, what it does is it rewinds and then it ejects the tape. And so I had gone off to, to work one day. I still live with my parents. I got off to work and I came home and my room looked like, you know, those movies where like the FBI or the police have like just searched everything. My bed was like turned to the, my bed was turned to the side. All my drawers and dressers were open. Like everything, you, it was like one of those scenes from, <laughs> from like the FBI or the police had like raided my room. And so the, I walk in and I see this, this monstrosity, this hurricane. Yes. And the first thing I do is look over to my right at the VCR and the tape is gone. And so I'm like, oh, my secret is out. What am I going to do? All these thoughts started to come through my mind. Am I going to get kicked out? What am I going to do? Can I afford somewhere to stay? Why was I so careless? And so I was like beating myself up. <laughs> so I put my room back together. I go to sleep. The next morning I was off of work and my dad comes to me. He says, hey, Shermaine, um, we need to talk. And of course I say, talk about what? So I'm still denying to this fact, like everything that just happened. He said, I said, talk about what? And he said, you know what we need to talk about. And so um, my dad, for whatever reason, decided that he didn't want to have that conversation at the house. So we went to a restaurant. And uh, for the next uh, the next day, um, we met at a restaurant. Him, it was him, my mom, and me. We get to the restaurant, and my dad starts to ask me questions. My mom doesn't say a word. My dad says, hey, Shermaine, did we do something wrong? Like, did me and your mom mess up? Like, what did we, like, to make you this way? <laughs> and I say, no, dad, you guys were perfect. I've felt this way since I was in the third grade, but I was a too, too afraid to tell anyone. And he paused. He says, okay. Next question he asks is, did someone abuse you? Like, was there some, uh, some sort of event or something like that, that, that caused you to, to be this way? And I said, no, dad, I felt this way since I was in the third grade. And I don't remember what questions he asked after that. I think it was one more, but he, he had this, there was this long pause and he said, Shermaine, we love you. And we stood up, he gave me a hug. My mom gave me a hug and that was it. And there was such a sense of relief. And I thought, and, and I thought that it was going to be this huge, big thing. And it wasn't, he said, I love you and gave me a hug. And I thought, wow, I've hid this for 24 years and it was nothing. 
I, the, the, the worst thing I thought would happen didn't happen. And so that may be a, a message for your audience as well is sometimes fear of, of being ourselves, the fear of unhiding. We make it to be this big, huge thing when in reality, after your truth is, is exposed or after you're living your truth, it's, it's nothing like we've had it in our heads. Shermaine's experience didn't end up aligning with his worst fears, thankfully. And I know that sadly many people are rejected in similar situations. The point I want to share here is this. It's totally understandable to make assumptions as to how others will react to us owning our truths, whether it's sexual orientation like it was for Shermaine, or say assertiveness or a boundary that you want to set with a friend or a colleague or a family member. Notice how often we assume the worst. There's this projection, it's going to blow up, my worst fear is going to come true. Notice that and question it. Is that really true or is there some possibility here? So back to the conversation, Shermaine is in the process of figuring out who he is now that he's owned his truth. What does it mean to just be yourself? It sounds so easy, right? But there's this messy period of feeling into who he was now that he wasn't leading with his hidden self. He's going to share a baby step that he took with the help of a coach to start putting himself out there. And then he shares a tool that he used. Listen out for the index cards bit because it could be really fun for you too if you're shedding, I don't know, the good girl persona or the nice guy way of being. So let's drop back in to the conversation. I'm still figuring that out, what being me means, right? And so for me, there were lots of, we can call them milestones or onion or onions, layers that were pulled, uncovered. One of them was a challenge I was given by my coach, uh, his name's Rich Litman, and it was to create a video of what I want you to know and what I don't want you to know about me. So I created this video, and at the end of this video, I spoke about being, being gay and hiding that for 24 years and being afraid that that... I would be alone if people knew my secret. And I put that out there. He, he uh, got a hold of me and said, hey, can I share this with the community? He said, this is amazing. Can I share this with my entire community? I think it was like, yeah, 3,000 people in his Facebook group. And so being able to do that and be seen in that sort of way was a, another way for me to peel a layer, to actually come out, <laughs> come out again in a much larger audience. So one tool that I used before getting it out on that larger stage is a, is a simple note card. And I would write down the things that I don't want people to know about me, the, the things that were deep. And then I could choose if I wanted to share those or not. That's a, a tool that I used early on. And I would do a kind of a gut check. And is this, does this feel weird? Yeah. Does it feel uneasy? So that's one tool that I, that I would, would use. So what's going on there for somebody who's wondering, well, what's the point of that? Mm. If, you, if you put your coach hat on for a moment, what is going on in that process of you writing down the things you don't want anybody to know about you on an index card? Yeah, for me, it is getting it out there. It's a way to get it out of my mind and out of my heart and onto paper. 
because if I can first uh, gain awareness of what some of those things are, then I can choose. I'm now at choice. I can choose, hey, which one of these do I want to share? And I, and, I, and I had to remember that it doesn't make me weak. It doesn't make me weak when I share things about myself. It's actually the opposite. It takes a lot more to share things, the things that you don't want people to know about you. It takes a lot more to do that. Charmaine's a big guy. He's six foot one. So when he was a teenager hiding his secret, he shaved his head and went around mean mugging people at school. That's a new term for me, mean mugging. It was Charmaine's way of pushing people away and keeping his armor on. I share that because one of Charmaine's biggest leadership gifts nowadays is his vulnerability and his compassion. This is a man who sincerely cares about people and sees them, maybe because he understands how it felt to be scared and invisible and unseen. He's going to share what compassion and leadership looked like early in his career. And while he's talking about him, I'm inviting you to think about what it could look and feel like to bring more compassion for yourself, first and foremost, and also for those who you lead day to day. I told you I ran, I ran a restaurant in an area no one wanted, with people no one wanted. I had the best people numbers, so the best retention numbers, the best turnover numbers. My people numbers were off the chart. You see, when you can be authentic with your team and show that you actually care about them, productivity increases, your sales increase, collaboration, innovation. You get all of these benefits from increasing uh, the trust that's that's between you and your direct report. And so I found that to be very useful in my career. When I was a general manager at Pizza Hut, I had a, an employee who decided that he would uh, smoke weed in the cooler. This was back before it was uh, legal. And I was not there at the time. So my shift manager sent him home. I ended up firing him. And here's the thing. Two weeks after I let him go, he came back to the store. He said, hey, Shermaine, can I talk to you? I said, sure. And so we walked outside. And he said, Shermaine, I, I want to apologize to you. He said, I really, I let you down and, and, I'm, and I'm sorry. He said, I've had lots of jobs before this one. And he said, you were the only manager who, who saw me who saw me. You didn't see the clothes I was wearing. You didn't see my skin color. You didn't see my background. You didn't see the tats on my face. You saw me. And you made it a point to see me every single day. You made it a point to ask me how I was doing. You really cared and you made me feel like I was a part of the team. You made me feel like I mattered and like my voice mattered. And I'm so sorry I let you down but I want to thank you for, for the opportunity. And it was in that moment, I was, I couldn't say anything. I felt so emotional. I think I said, thanks. <laughs> you know, I, I, I didn't know what to say. You see, I had made an impact, such a huge impact in, in the life of, of this young man. And it, and it stays with me today because you never know what someone else is going through. You never know what someone else has been through. Hearing this story reminds me that we are all holding so much 
no matter how shiny and successful life looks on the outside. And that includes those people that seem to have it all together, or those people who might come across as cranky and unapproachable or made of Teflon, or you might have various expletives for them. We are all holding so much. If you're new here, I finish every episode with a brick of wisdom from our guest, a thought they'd like to gift you with. So Shermaine, take it away. What I would like to leave is when you are yourself, great things happen. And a little footnote to that, you don't actually have to know fully what being yourself means, if I understand you correctly. Yes, yes. When you're, when you're willing to, hmm, when you're willing to not care about having it all together, when you're willing to, to be a little bit messy, when you're willing to do something that scares you, that, that, that makes you, that you feel it in your stomach, when you're willing to, to, ask that scary question or, you know, something like that, then you begin to, in my opinion, be more of who you are. I dream of a world where there is no shame in being yourself. That's a quote by Shermaine, and you'll find his details in the show notes if you want to know more about him. I don't know about you, but I feel softer and more expansive and more fully in my humanity after this conversation. And if you enjoyed it too, please go ahead and forward this episode to somebody who you know would love it. And while you're at it, before you leave Spotify or Apple Podcasts, please go ahead and hit the follow button on the show. It helps the podcast to grow and it also means you'll never miss an episode. If you missed the last episode, we talked about being more visible. So there's kind of a theme going on here. Check that one out if you haven't already. As ever, thank you so much for listening. And let's do this all again in two weeks.